They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Wow, Elliot, two times in one week, you mm -hmm. get to see me. It's just like we were, it's just like when we were living together. No kidding. Such such fond memories we have of, of those long forgotten days. Anyway, uh, I thought we could banter a bit here in this section that you recently revealed to me that you watched a series that I had recommended that you watch. Elliot, you've seen Andor now. Give us give us oh. your thoughts on Andor, the television show. Yeah, dude, that show is really good. Uh, uh, so uh, everyone was gone for Labor Day weekend, and I stayed behind to watch the dog, so I didn't have much to do. And I had seen the first three episodes, I'd enjoyed them, but they didn't really hook me in the way that I wanted. Uh, so I decided with the time that I had on my hands, I would give it another go. And I binged the whole rest of the series that day. I thought it was just, it was so unlike Star Wars because the, sh the script was really sharp. The CGI was really good. Uh, the characters were really interesting. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how nice it was to see people on location, shooting on location and in sets that weren't just some beach sand they stole from a playground and some paper mache rocks. It was so nice. Um, yeah, and I just thought it was really interesting how they did the actual work of grappling with what the bureaucracy would look like for a galaxy spanning empire. I still, I was still questioning like with a bureaucratic apparatus of this size, how something, how like one explosion and two dead security guards on a single planet managed to show up on the ISB's radar. But I, I, I can forgive that. I understand how I, I understand that it needs to work for the story. I thought the villain, the woman, I thought she was really good. She was ruthless and intimidating and really well acted. Um, I loved the arc in the prison with Andy Serkis, just because I'm a big fan of Andy Serkis. But yeah, I, I, I honestly, my biggest, the biggest weak point for me in the show was probably Andor himself. He, he things just kind of happened to him for the most part. He, he was sort of a passenger I felt in his own story, but Diego Luna played him competently enough. And of course I was just so, so taken by uh, everything that was happening around him and watching a star Wars show that actually took its time to do some setup and some payoff was so novel that I was able to overlook the comparatively weak central character. Also, I just love Stellan Skarsgård. I think he's a fantastic actor. 
Yeah, it's. I do want to say that I think we can attribute a fair amount of the quality of the show to the showrunner, Tony Gilroy, who I think in like the 90s had a lot of, was either a screenwriter or a director of a fair number of fairly iconic, very well-received films. And the Andor show had been in production since like Rogue One came out. So they really took their time with this. They really put in the effort, and I think, yeah, you can certainly see it. I've already given it a glowing review, but that's so fantastic that you enjoyed it too. It's so neat when we feel the same. I know, it happens so rarely. But also, one last thing, the woman who played the security guard's mother, the guy who gets uh, the boot and then goes back to live with his mother, she played the witch in Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth interesting (laughs) yeah she's a big she's a like a really well-known theater actor in the uk and apparently so obviously i'm in no way shape or form tapped into the theater scene in the uk but apparently there are a lot of those so like andor's mother is another big name in the london theater world and so is the guy who played the security guard supervisor huh well and that's really kind of a throwback to the casting for the original Star Wars with people like Alec Guinness and um, Peter Cushing being very, very prominent British actors. Less so just for the theater. I think both of them were very well-respected film actors, but, you know, that's interesting. All right. It, enough of all that. Let's let's talk about the real thing, because this is, episode's going to take forever, because I could just go on for a while. Um, (laughs) so yeah, like we said in the 51st episode, so if you haven't listened to that, go listen to that one chronologically. It's a great one, but we're doing two episodes to celebrate the one year anniversary. Yesterday we recorded No Country for Old Men, which is Elliot's favorite film. Today we are recording my favorite film, the film that I most commonly give as the answer to my favorite film. Uh, Damien Chazelle's 2016 La La Land. Uh, This is a musical that uh, was incredibly well-received on release. Damien Chazelle kind of was able to springboard from Whiplash, his second film, and make this movie that he had been kind of envisioning since he was in film school. And... Yeah, so a plot, a brief plot rundown. It follows Ryan Gosling as Sebastian and Emma Stone as Mia, two kind of aspiring artists in Los Angeles as they're both trying to pursue their respective dreams. Seb trying to be a, a jazz musician and trying to get a successful career through that. Emma Stone trying to be, or Mia trying to be an actress and make it, into film and television and that sort of thing. And the movie follows kind of their romance as they fall in love. And then uh, kind of the ending, how that relationship ends up. Uh, If you haven't seen the movie, you should watch it because we're going to talk about the ending extensively. So there's no way for us to avoid spoilers, but yeah, Elliot, we can start with you, I guess if you want to talk in this episode. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, what do you think? I am actually interested to hear what I know you've seen this once and this I think is the first time you've rewatched it. You're kind of down on the old Chazelle boy, my boy <laughs> Chazelle. Uh, what did you think in this most recent sort of viewing and what was kind of your opinion going into it? Uh, well, I remember my La La Land experience being defined by my Whiplash experience. Having watched Whiplash beforehand and absolutely loving it, uh, also go watch Whiplash if you're looking for things to watch because that's a fantastic movie. And this movie is very much not Whiplash. I thought it was good, like, but I sort of kind of thought it was like a bit fluffy. Like it was just kind of, it was just something that I, that I watched and enjoyed. And there were, there were pretty colors and pretty people. And some of the songs were a little catchy. I should state up front that I am not a fan of musicals. Uh, I, I just don't like them very much. I, for no real like substantive reason, I just find it annoying when people start singing instead of doing things that they should be doing. Um, so this movie was always going to have an uphill battle with me is what I'm saying. Coming from the ecstatic highs of whiplash and also being in a genre that I typically don't jive with. And I, I, it's, it was easily my favorite musical that I had seen up until that point. It remains so. I think that I, I definitely, definitely appreciated it more this time around and appreciated more of the subtle things that it was doing. But I, I just am not there yet. I am, I'm, and I'm really sorry because I, I, I know that people, people love the movies that they love. And I, I, I make fun of Nathan about different things, but I, I don't want to do that here because Nathan really likes this movie and I'm, I'm really happy for him. I, I, I love it when Nathan loves things because he gets all excited and he acts kind of like a child, but I, I'm just not there for reasons that we'll get into. Okay. Well, I guess you could do that if you want to make me cry. <laughs> It's like when someone starts, you know, saying bad things about my mom. I just break down ball. I'm like, no, don't say that. Damien is so weak. He can't take the criticism. <laughs> yeah, so I guess for my opening thoughts and just to give sort of some context, uh, because I think it's important to get kind of my emotional context to why I fell in love with this movie as much as I did. I saw this film. I also saw Whiplash before La La Land. So it's interesting that you feel like your kind of experience with La La Land was colored by Whiplash because I had the same sort of thing and I also loved Whiplash. But anyway, I saw La La Land in theaters, which I'm just, thank goodness I did. That's such a cool thing that I'm so glad that I was able to. But I saw it in theaters on like my second or third date with my high school girlfriend who it was my senior year of high school. And we knew that she was going to be leaving for a different college than I was going to go to. So my experience with the film and especially my experience with the ending of the film was very colored by right. Me putting myself in that place of, Oh no, it's so right. Sad. Uh, kind of spoilers here in the ending 
Mia goes off to Paris to become a movie star and Seb stays in LA. And then there's a time jump and it reveals that they did not stay together in the, that Mia ended up marrying someone else. And Seb is for all intents and purposes, happily single operating a jazz club. But my experience with the film was very colored by sort of how bummed I was that they didn't stay together. Cause I saw it as like, you know, I won't stay together with this person I'm dating. And so I was really torn up by that. I was a little upset. And the next time I watched the movie was after uh, this relationship had ended. We had broken up. And suddenly this film took on a whole new meaning that it wasn't, you know, what a sad and pointless thing, what a sad and pointless ending that we had to see this whole relationship be built up and then be destroyed Suddenly it became a, oh, look, movies are lying to you by saying that every relationship you have is going to end in some fairy tale and like, you know, romance. And I think I was able to kind of see all of these different subtle things that the movie is doing with respect to films and kind of romance movies in general and so I think my experience for the film is so informed by that, right, emotional context of slowly coming to the realization that the movie has a very positive message. It just wasn't the message I wanted the first time I saw it. But th all that to say, I adore this movie. I think it is technical perfection. I think the actors are incredible. I think... Damien Chazelle is going absolutely bonkers in every conceivable way. The music's amazing. I also don't really love musicals besides this and like Chicago, but the music is incredible. And yeah, I'm so excited to get into this. I'm glad that you are, you know, finally seeing the light that you've exited the darkness Right. If we're thinking the allegory of the cave, I've been seeing this. I've been trying to get you to see that all you see is shadows. And I finally got you to uh, see some of the light. So I'm so I'm so excited. Let's let's start. Elliot, what, what do you want to start with? What do you want to you know, I'll talk about whatever related to this film. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with the defining aspect of this movie. That's the music. Um so the songs, their actual, like, musical composition, but also the choreography for the dancing and the cinematography therein, that kind of thing. Um, I'll go first because obviously I'm going to have less to say about this than Nathan is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I thought these songs were all entertaining. Nothing that I would listen to casually, I'm afraid. But uh, I – and see, this is the thing with – with like every musical, I always feel like the songs last too long. Like the, the narrative pace of the movie is slowed by these songs because they necessarily aren't moving the plot along or very rarely are moving the plot along. They are pondering or uh, what reflecting extensively on something that's already happened or something that is happening. So I always find that frustrating and it's not it wasn't frustrating in this movie but i was just like yep they're still singing and i i'm i'm losing interest one area where i can offer i think 
unqualified praise for this movie. Well, two areas. One is in the like intimate soul level connection that was shared between the costume designers, the set designers, the lighting, the cinematography, and the color people, because all those things always blend together, I think, perfectly to create either these very glossy, candy-colored, dreamlike sequences, or more, I don't know, not really gritty, but more grounded, realistic lighting and color uh, when we sort of exit La La Land and come back to the real world. That's all great. Uh, and I really, I really like it, especially in the, in the songs and in the dancing and all that. I will say that I was aggravated multiple times in this movie where they were trying to do a wonder of all the dancing and the singing and the laughing but they did some very obvious camera tricks to hide their cuts. I'm thinking specifically of the one with Ryan Gos with Sebastian and Mia when they're leaving the party. It's like they're first starting to fall in love and they're on the hillside overlooking Los Angeles and they're singing and all that stuff. And they sit down on the bench and the camera zooms in in between their heads. So they're out of the shot and then zooms out. And it is it could not be more obvious that that's where they cut it. And I was like, could you really not have thought of something a little more subtle? Because it was just a little bit jarring. But that's really the only quibble I have with the technical aspects of the singing and the dancing. The cinematography, lighting, costume design, and the color in this movie, I think, is, is fantastic. It's one of the best uses of color I've seen in a movie. Because it's not just like making things look pretty. The color, I feel like, has a real tangible link to what's happening and what you're supposed to be feeling. Yeah, I guess before we move to this, I just had written down, and I guess, you know, you said you didn't love any of the songs, but do you have a favorite of the songs? The fact that you didn't know the name of Lovely Night, which is that song that they sing with that cut that you're so whiny about does not bode well for your answer to this question but did you have a, a, a personal favorite song nope no you don't have an answer or no you're not answering <laughs> I don't have a favorite I don't have a favorite song from this movie <laughs> that's a bummer my favorite is another day of sun uh yeah I feel like it was funny editing. Uh, the episode that we did yesterday, how many times, how many times, and this episode is going to be pretty much the same, which is why I bring it up. Every time you praise this movie, I agree. I agree unequivocally everything you said. I also thought you put it very beautifully that the movie does use color in the first half of the movie, which is when Damien Chazelle says the movie is a musical. And then the back half of the movie becomes more of a drama than a musical as the relationship breaks down and the kind of veneer of La La Land in the sense of this idealized version of their lives that they're hoping for slowly reveals that it's not going to happen. But in that first opening, right, hour, hour and a half of the film, it's just gorgeous. And they did such an amazing job of picking 
all of these colors that everything is popping, but it's not garish. It never feels like it's right giving you a headache or it's too much. It's just so colorful and fun and all of the singing and dancing. Again, I don't really like movie musicals. A lot of times it's because I don't like the songs in them. So I feel the same way as you that the songs are just like, oh gosh, I have to hear, you know, someone sing some pointless, stupid song about nothing. But I I love all of the songs in this movie. I think they're all really catchy. I agree in some sense that some of them don't serve much purpose in terms of moving the plot along. But like City of Stars is just so beautiful and there's such a raw quality to it that makes it feel like we're seeing something very intimate and personal and romantic that I cannot imagine cutting that song out of this movie, even though doing so would remove no plot, but it is just so gorgeous. You'd have to be insane to want to cut it. And that's how I feel about a lot of the musical passages in this film, that it is just so well done. And yeah, I agree with everything you said. Linus Sandgreen is, or Sandgren is the cinematographer and he does such a phenomenal job in this film. Every, you know, the classic, every frame of painting, which I don't think is fully true because I'm sure there's some random shots of like a tree that's not really that great of a painting. But like 70% of the frames are a painting here. So yes, I definitely, I agree. The musical elements of this film are so, so good. And when we get into sort of the themes of the movie, I think it makes the musical sections that much better. But yeah, they're great. They're so good. Sure, whatever. Another thing I is I I just I really liked the cinematography in this in general because I thought it all it was always perfectly appropriate for what was happening. And I thought that this movie did a fantastic trick in the scene where Mia and Sebastian and this is kind of a foreshadowing of when I get into more of my criticisms when they have their whole cliche. Now we're fighting fight uh, when they're having dinner in the middle of Sebastian's tour, the point where it gets to like, they've said some things that they're obviously going to regret eventually. And the smoke detector goes off. The cinematography changes to this like shaky cam, almost documentary style uh, style And it's like nothing we've seen so far in the movie because everything up until then has been right out of classic Hollywood with these, where this camera has always been very steady. It's always been fairly static. When it does move, it's clearly on a dolly or on a track or it's just using steady cam. So there's no real shake to it. But this, I think, is like the first moment where we're starting to leave La La Land. And I I thought that it was, it was a really good marriage of narrative and form yeah and then you'll also notice that the coloring after that scene which does represent like you said the scene of that is the shift in the film from it's no longer a musical it's a drama it's now becoming something different and so the lighting is still very good but it's now not as obviously uh i guess you could say film setty right? That now it's a bit more realistic style. It's not as obviously a construction for a film. It's 
trying to go for a more realistic style. So, yeah, I think the other thing with cinematography, and this is just something I love to point out. Uh, I think we mentioned it a bit in the eighth grade movie review that we did that shot reverse shot, which is when you go from kind of in a conversation, you go from one member of the conversation to the other. Uh, this movie does a really good job of letting you see the development of Mia and Seb's relationship using how they shoot shot reverse shot scenes that at the beginning, I believe it's both of them in the frame. You're sort of outside of the thing. And then as they get closer, shot reverse shot begins moving into the conversation as it becomes a more intimate, it's closer to them. It feels more romantic as opposed to it's outside of just kind of watching them to talk. So, which is just a tiny thing that I don't think impacts your viewing experience a ton, but it just does that extra, you know, special sauce that makes you even more buy into this relationship and this, um, developing um, pairing that we're seeing come together. Okay, you're making faces at me. <laughs> they certainly do have a relationship, don't they? Wow, okay, all right. All right, well, I think that's as good a time as any to let's talk about the main relationship, the crux of sort of the movie. You know, so let's begin with, Elliot, you're a bit of an acting nerd. You claim you're an actor. Uh, what do you think of the main two performances, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone? There's really not any other people who are that important to the film. Uh, it's mostly just about these two. But what did you think of those two performances? And I'm sure this is where you're going to start complaining. What did you think of the, the romance? <laughs> When did you get it into your head that I'm a big acting nerd? I haven't been in a play since high school. I, I appreciate a good performance as much as the next person, but just in the same way that I appreciate a good painting. But I'm also nothing of an artist. Okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, I thought they were both really good. I, I just have to say, Ryan Gosling is such a fantastic comic actor. It is a it is a shame that he has not been in more comedies. If you haven't seen The Nice Guys, go and watch it right now. That movie's hilarious, and Ryan Gosling is hilarious in it because he has such a perfect understanding of timing and expressions. Like, when he first hooks up with Keith and his band, and they're doing this sort of classic jazz thing, and then they sort of downshift into a more poppy kind of... Uh, style and he just looks over there and then looks back to Keith and it's just timed immaculately well and his expression is so perfect I was losing it laughing and it's not even that funny of a joke it's just he plays it so well I I love Ryan Gosling as a comic actor but I also think he's a great actor in general and he does a great job here so does Emma Stone one of the things that's really hard to do that I think is most impressive for an actor to do is to act poorly convincingly. So there's a scene in Birdman where Edward Norton and Michael Keaton are rehearsing a scene for a play and Michael Keaton is acting in a kind of mediocre way. And it, I just, I don't know how you do that. Like, how do you know 
what to do and what not to do to make a performance seem like legitimately seem like you don't know how to do it without making it come across like you're just being comically exaggeratedly bad. And I think that Emma Stone does that really well in her auditions, which are generally pretty poor, although she's also obviously, for humor's sake, been given pretty poor material to work with. Um, but that that's just something that I really appreciate about uh, the, the greats of acting. And I think that this demonstrates that Emma Stone, although she's never really been that big, uh, and it's been a while since I've seen her in anything, but I do think that she has a lot of talent. I mean, I, I can, I, I want to hold off. I want to let you enjoy yourself for as long as possible. So you can talk about the performances and then I'll talk about this relationship, which truly is one of the relationships of movie history. Um, I love the acting. I think, like you said, this movie is surprisingly funny and not even in a way that it doesn't feel like there's a ton of times where it's trying to make you laugh. Like it's doing a joke. It feels more like the characters are just naturally funny. Like Ryan Gosling is just naturally funny. Like is sort of how I feel about it. It feels funny in the same way that if I'm hanging out with a group of friends, we will occasionally be funny just by nature of we're funny people. We'll tell a joke that is funny, but I just think there's a sort of realism to the human. And I realize I made fun of you for getting pretentious and this sounds super pretentious, <laughs> but I do think the movie is funny in a way that is much more natural than um, other like romantic comedies or other comedies. And I think Ryan Gosling is a huge part of that as well as Emma Stone. And then, yeah, they're just both fantastic. Emma Stone, I think gets a lot of the praise because she has to do a bulk of the acting. Like you said, she has to portray someone who is a good enough actor to eventually be famous, but not a good enough actor yet to be famous that she's sort of in a weird middle area. I think one of the moments that just is so amazing to me is that first scene when, or not that first scene, but sort of after lovely night, Seb sneaks onto the Warner brothers lot where Mia works and kind of walks her home or he walks to her car with her after she's done with her job and they have this great conversation where it's going through, right, movie sets. And she's talking about why she loves acting and why she loves movies, which I love because I love movies. So she's talking about things that I relate to. And then at the end of it, she reveals that she doesn't like jazz and he's so taken aback by this. And then he goes, what are you doing right now? And there's a beat where the camera is on Emma Stone and you can see the character, she kind of says nothing, and then she really thinks about it. And I think it is such an incredible character moment that it's just this merest hint of what, like, what am I doing? What really, what am I doing? What am I trying to do with my life? What am I trying to, where like, she takes in the seriousness of sort of the question, and then she says nothing again. And then they go to a jazz thing, and oh, it's so cute. It's amazing. Ah, it's so fun. Okay, now talk about why it's a bad relationship, Elliot. 
This is not a bad relationship. Good. But this relationship being the centerpiece of the movie as it is and being the linchpin of the ending, like this relationship needs to, it, the movie needs to sell you on the relationship and it needs to sell you on it hard if it's going to make such a bold, from a writing standpoint, ending pay off. And it doesn't pay off for me because it doesn't sell it hard enough for me. This relationship, mm. just there's just nothing special about it. It just feels like they never feel like they really love each other. They feel like they're just kind of really good friends. I mean, they don't really... And I get that some of this can be attributed to the point of La La Land, like the idea of La La Land within the movie being this kind of dreamy, gauzy place where you're not quite, you're you're not really re- thinking about things the way you should be, or you're not really thinking, you're not really being serious in the way that you should be. So I understand that that's a big part of why they don't really talk about anything substantive, but I feel like they take it to the point where their relationship in turn does not feel very substantial. They just kind of do things together, but they don't really share things in the way that like a really good, strong, intimate relationship does. So when the relationship falls apart, I just don't get that bittersweet feeling of like, oh man, what could have been, what might have been. And part of this is I've never been in a relationship. So obviously I'm speaking with a fairly limited context here, but from a writing point of view, I don't think that the first three quarters of the movie does the legwork that it needed to do in order to make me really feel the loss of the relationship. I was like, yep, they're having the whole cliche fight where they're communicating very poorly. Uh, I wish I could say like movie poorly, but I'm pretty sure that is the way some people communicate. They have failed to express their desires and their visions for the relationship to each other. So it falls apart, but it's, it just, it seems less like this really tragic sort of tragedy. I, I, there you, that's, that's what four years of studying literature will do for you. Um, and it feels more like just two people who are, just don't have a whole lot of emotional intelligence and that ends up killing the relationship. And, you know, I just said, you know, <laughs> the war against, you know, continues. Um, we have lost the battle, but not the war. I swear to you. Um, so yeah, I, it, it just doesn't do anything for me. I mean, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't do anything for me. It's that it doesn't do enough for me to really appreciate the ending the way and the latter or yeah, the latter half of this movie, the way that so many people do. I'm sorry, Nathan. I'm sorry. Um, no, I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, statement, obviously. I guess if I had to summarize why I think this movie relationship, why I feel like it does land with a lot of uh, vermicillitude for me personally, with Good a lot word. of, thank you. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. Uh, just with a lot of um, reality that it feels very real. I think I can attribute it to a few things. One, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling's chemistry is just insane in this movie it's 
again, like the jokes, it feels very natural. The conversations feel very, uh, not very forced, not like, oh gosh, we have to think of things to say, but it's a very easy, comfortable sort of feeling that I get from the relationships. And then I think the other big thing for me is, and thinking of other movie relationships that I really buy into, this is not like a romance or like a rom-com where it's based on like, oh, they're hot. And so I want to write sleep with them or I want to date them. Like in this film, it's an intellectual connection that they sort of have right? In the scene that I was talking about where he comes on to the Warner Brothers lot and then is walking with them, like he's taking an interest in what she's interested in. He's asking about things that she cares about and she's reciprocating, right? She's asking about jazz. She's explaining how she feels about jazz and letting and really listening to how he feels about jazz. And the movie isn't based on these huge, dramatic, right romantic gestures it's focused on these incredibly small things like she comes to the movie with him and then they hold hands and then they go to the observatory at night and there's right the music and it's so romantic and then there's sort of a dream sequence that shows how it kind of feels right that they've got these butterflies they're dancing in the stars it's so amazing and it's just gorgeous but I think because the movie is more focused on a very natural chemistry that is not, again, like a lot of other rom-coms, just a physical sort of attraction. It's an intellectual thing. And then the movie has a montage. And anytime a movie has a montage, it could have anything at the end of the montage. And I'd be like, yes, checks out to me. If there was a montage where at the end of it, Captain America became like a Nazi skinhead, it would not have to do much legwork in the montage. I'd just be like, yes, that checks out, makes sense that he would do such a thing. So, you know, the movie has a montage, they're in love at the end of the montage, checks out. That makes sense to me. Well, that's great. I'm glad it makes sense to you. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I, I, I'm not a fan of rom-coms in general. It's just not really my thing, much in the same way that musicals are. I definitely get what you're saying. I, I've seen enough rom-coms to identify the the sort of, I don't know, relationship dynamic that you're talking about. And they definitely do have an intellectual connection. It's just, it never feels like it moves into a very emotional connection, which mm -hmm. contributes. And all these small things, I understand what you're saying, but to me, that just contributes to them just feeling like good friends. I mean... And even, even when I think about the great movie friendships, uh, the ones that really impact me are ones where you do have this very strong foundation of people just doing life together. Because that's most of what friendship is. It's just hanging out, doing things, shooting the breeze, that kind of stuff. But they're grounded by moments where the relationship is tested and they come through for each other. Obviously, the greatest movie friendship in movie, indeed, storytelling history is Frodo and Sam. And you have that that moment that makes me that is the literally the only moment ever in a movie that has made me cry when he when Sam carries Frodo up the mountain. And that's such a fantastic and it is a big grand gesture, but it's built on a foundation of them just being there for each other. And I 
I just don't get that from Mia and Sebastian because their connection always felt so shallow to me. It like it never went past the just hanging out, shooting the breeze, doing stuff together. Hmm. That's it. You know, I guess everyone's allowed to be wrong sometimes about a few things. So, you know, God gives us grace and we give unto others this same grace. So, you know, <laughs> there's grace enough for you, Elliot. <laughs> um, but I do kind of off of this, I want to talk about the themes of the movie. And specifically, I think the ending of the film, which is where we see the themes and also where I see, I guess, most often critiques leveled at the movie. I think my grandparents went to see this when it came out in theaters and they didn't like it because they thought the ending was sad. I've talked to many a person since then who feels the same way, that they don't see the point of watching a movie that pretty much undoes its entire premise in the last <laughs> 10 minutes of the film. You just said undoes. Un- what would it, what would the right word be? Undoes. You've just lost all Undoes. of your verisimilitude credit. <laughs> don't worry. I'll use another big word later. All right. All right. I hope so. Um, but let me, let me break down what I see as the theme the idea of the movie, we've kind of been talking about it up to now, but I would characterize this film as a very postmodern movie. By that, I mean, it is a movie that is aware that you are aware that you're watching a movie, that it's, it knows that you've seen movies before. It knows that you exist in a world with movies and the characters in some sense exist in a world with movies. We can see this in a lot of ways in the mo- in the film, stuff like there's tons of movie musical references throughout the movie. Almost all of the song and dance numbers contain at least some reference to an iconic movie musical from all the way back to like 1929, all the way up to, you know, more modern musicals like Chicago and stuff. But the reason why this is important is because the end of the movie functions as a, I think, a rejection of the thesis of so many of these movie musicals, right? We've been talking about how at the halfway point, the movie has a switch from a glitzy, glammy, la-la land movie musical sort of story to a drama. And the end of the movie is the ending that the drama would have. And the ending of the movie functions as a refutation of the common movie myth or Hollywood myth that, right, romances are the defining meaningful thing of a person's life. If you watched only rom-coms, you would think the only thing that matters is to move to a small town in Montana and meet some boy on a horse or something like that. I don't know. Mom watches Hallmark movies, and that's kind of the sense I've got from uh, what they're espousing. (laughs) But this movie is kind of rejecting that premise, and I think the way it does that is showing that there is something deeply meaningful and beautiful about two people coming into each other's lives and having an incredibly positive impact and then leaving each other's lives, right? Because of Mia's influence on Seb, 
he ends up getting the jazz club that he wants, right? He joins a jazz group that's doing music that's not really what he wants, but he makes enough money from that and becomes famous enough from that, presumably, that he's able to open the club that he's always dreamed of. Mia, through Seb, is finally able to get enough confidence to quit her job, do a one-woman show that gets her noticed by a casting agent, that gets her, right, to be a movie star. They both had these amazingly profound effects on each other. And even though it didn't end in the romance we see depicted in the final epilogue, where we see, I think, the full movie ver- the fully movie-fied version of the movie we just saw, even though they didn't get that, they're still happy, right? They still achieved something meaningful and amazing and... I just think that's really cool. As someone who loves movies, I think being honest that movies lie to you in some sense is such an amazing thing for people who are young and just being inundated with so much media about what it means to be in a relationship, what it means to be a good person, stuff like this. Seeing a movie that's like, hey, all of this stuff is like neat. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but thinking that it turning out poorly is the end of the world is incorrect. So that's, I realize I just talked for a really long time. Elliot, what do you think of the themes of the movie? Uh, I, I appreciate them on an intellectual level, but I, I just don't think that the, that form and theme is, I don't think that they ever come to a satisfying or a, really excellent um, union. I think that I really like the idea of this ending. I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying on a purely intellectual level. And I think that this is a really bold, uh, but ultimately clever way to end this movie. Oh, that's nice. Sorry. I just, just, uh, and a very large ant just crawled over the book next to me. That doesn't matter. No one cares. Um, but I think that, so obviously a lot of this is that I, I just didn't really, I just wasn't all that invested in the relationship. So I couldn't really, I could never really appreciate it on anything other than an intellectual level rather than an emotional level. Um, another thing is I, I feel like there was a better way to do the time jump because leaving it ambiguous as to why, as to whether or not they're going to stay together when Mia is on the cusp of going to Paris for this shoot, left me asking questions, but not in the good, like, mysterious, the thing way, but more in like the, okay, what happened? Why was this relationship deemed to be unworkable? Where was the, I would have liked to have seen the choice, the moment of the choice where Sebastian specifically decides that he wants to pursue his dream and that Mia is not, does not have to be a part of that. Because I feel leaving that out, I just, I, I don't understand how we got to where we get to. And that leaves me a little, I don't know, it leaves me a little confused. It leaves me in a, a sort of 
in an emotional state that you don't want to be at the end of the movie because you're thinking about things that are not the movie. When a movie is ending, you want to be right in there uh, to, to defend from the intrusion of refrigerator logic, as Alfred Hitchcock mm -hmm. uh, notably said. You want to be defending against refrigerator logic so it doesn't become theater chair logic. Um, and it's not that this is illogical, obviously. It's just that it asked, it, it left me with questions that were distracting me from what the movie was ultimately doing. I agree with you 100% on the themes of this movie being important and being, uh, um, well-constructed. I just don't think that they're, it's not that they're poorly delivered. I, I want to keep on making this clear. There's nothing that I think is bad about this movie. Nothing at all. But it's not very... It's not excellently delivered. Yeah. I guess I can... Well, eh, I don't know. I think in some sense you're asking for things that... I don't see what we would gain by adding a scene of Seb you know, monologuing to the camera, I am not going to pursue a relationship with Mia anymore. Okay, that's obviously not what I'm asking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's funny to say it in the worst possible way <laughs> to make you look stupid. No, I guess that's fine. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, I have, right, a fairly emotion. I'm coming from a very different emotional context that does put me, I think, right in the seats of the characters and right in the feelings and emotions of the characters in a way that not everyone who sees the movie is going to. And so I think that's, you know, every movie is going to somewhat be uh, prone to having that issue that if a person's not in the right emotional context or... Even if they are, maybe they're not just not going to connect with it in the way that the director is really wanting them to. But, you know, such is life. Yeah. Well, Elliot, do you have any uh, final, I guess, final thoughts or final things you want to talk about here before? I've got like eight final thoughts that are just little touches and moments that I think are really neat from the movie. Uh, not really. I, I want to emphasize that I find this movie entertaining and enjoyable. I, I, I like this movie. It's, and these, these problems are, these problems are obviously, they come from a fairly, uh, how do I say this without sounding like a complete tool? They are sophisticated problems because this wow. is a sophisticated because this is a sophisticated movie it's not like my problems with you know i just said you know again it's unbelievable it's ridiculous it's like a mental tick it's not like my problems with godzilla versus kong or um spider-man far from home where they're just flagrant blatant abysmal failures of storytelling and of internal logic, this movie is operating on a higher level than those movies could ever dream of. But it means that the problems with it are more complicated and they require more explanation or they require more articulation for me to be able to better express my viewpoint, not explanation in the sense that 
these are the factual problems with the movie. Let me explain them to you so you can agree. Let me, it's more that they take more time to articulate uh, so everyone can understand where I'm coming from. But it also means that, it just means that it is held from higher heights than Nathan greets this movie on. But it still is a high movie. Like, I, I don't uh, I don't want you to think that when I get to my grade, it will be like, oh, you've just spent the last 30 minutes trashing this movie. It's just because that's what I have the most to talk about. But this is an entertaining, enjoyable movie that is very well made from a technical standpoint. Uh, there's just some complicated writing narrative problems that are holding it back from true greatness. In my eyes. All right. Whatever. All right. Here's some quick hits. Really, these are all just cute little foreshadowing sort of things or just cute little details that I don't know if everyone's going to pick up on. Uh, Damien Chazelle calls his shot. The first line of the movie is uh, the first line of the first song of the movie, which is the first line spoken in the movie, is a character explaining that they left their boyfriend to chase their dream, which is exactly what... Mia ends up doing at the end of the film. I think that's neat. This song, Someone in the Crowd, is eventually true. Mia is eventually noticed by someone in the crowd. That's kind of an obvious one. Uh, Seb walks all the way to Mia's car and then tells her he doesn't need a ride because his car is right around the corner. But actually, he was parked right by the house. He just walked to walk with her, which I think is adorable. They show the couple that... Seb plays at their wedding. It shows them showing Mia and Seb the ring when they get engaged during the summer montage. I just think that's a really cute little detail that is completely superfluous, but is a really fun, just kind of narratively concise sort of thing. Um, Oh gosh, I feel like I had another one. Mm, I don't know if there's anything else. There's just lots of, it's clear that an incredible amount of attention to detail went into this film. There's not really any wasted sort of moments. Anything is either A, gorgeous and amazing, or B, important to you grasping the reach of the film. Oh, this is what it was. The only time they say I love you to each other is in that final scene by the observatory when they're deciding to go their separate ways, which I think, again, is a really cool, like, they don't say I love you when they're dating or when they're ostensibly in a relationship, when they're at the end of the thing. And again, the whole point of the ending that the biggest difference they made in each other's lives was right changing each other's lives for the better in this amazing way and right you can love someone for that it doesn't have to necessarily be a romantic love it can just be a wow i love that you you know positively impacted my life in this amazing way so those are all my last little fun little thing there's other stuff but those are the ones that just on every every time i rewatch the movie those are the little things that just get me all giddy and happy on the inside when I see them happen. <sighs> and I'm having to do this podcast with the thinker jeepers. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you want me to talk, I'll talk. But the thing I have to say is I thought the whole thing with that couple who got engaged was distracting. 
because there at the end when they showed the at the very end when they showed the postcard in Seb's house of that family, I was like, get out of here. I don't care about this nameless extra pair. Oh, well, also, I mean, this is cute, but when he finishes playing at the thing, everyone starts clapping for him, which is a far cry from when he finishes clap when he finishes playing in the restaurant at the beginning of the movie. He finishes playing this really meaningful, heartfelt sort of tune that he's made and no one noticed, no one heard it, which is just another right symbolizing of how he's been pulled out of these things that were pointless and he felt very unseen in. And the biggest thing that I think the two characters do is they see each other, right? Mia sees him playing and say, says, right, you're amazing at this thing. Seb doesn't really see her acting, but he sees her passion for it and says, hey, you should go chase that. or You should chase it with more enthusiasm than you've been doing up to now. Anyway, Elliot, what's your score for the movie? <laughs> okay, so yeah. I don't think that this movie does enough with its central relationship, which is the linchpin of the story. It's the linchpin of the themes in order to truly sell it. Like, it sells it enough for some people, and it, there's there's every chance that I'm just missing something, that I'm missing context, life experience, that kind of thing. But until such a time as that context has been supplied, I can only really appreciate this movie for the technical elements, for the great performances, for the kind of rainy afternoon, casual watch enjoyment of it. Uh, so I'm going to give it a very strong B, but that's that's all I can give it. And I'm sorry, Nathan. A B? I guess maybe I should have said this. I kind of think of the relationship as kind of an unheard narrator throughout the film. That's how I kind of see the the relationship. Uh, That's a a reference to our No Country for Old Men episode. So again, if you haven't listened to that, give that a listen. It's pretty much the same as this one, but the roles are reversed. And I'm uh, complaining about things that the other person gets upset about. Uh... Yeah, rating, it's uh, like a 15 out of 10, I would say. This movie is perfect. <laughs> I have I have yet to hear a single critique of this film that I think holds any amount of meaningful water for me. Again, I think a lot of this movie's appreciation for me can come from kind of uh, my experience with the film in real life and not in a I'm sitting at home watching the movie sort of experience, but... Yeah, this movie's great. Anyway, other movies are great, I suppose. <laughs> we could talk about some of those. Elliot, what's uh, what's your recommendation for people who've seen this film and want to watch another movie? Um, my recommendation is Casablanca. So it was always going to be hard for me to recommend a musical because I don't like musicals and I haven't seen that many of them. So instead, I just went with a movie that... Uh, for me, better exemplifies a more bittersweet uh, take on romance unfulfilled and the road not taken. So if you somehow have never heard of Casablanca, it's a it's a pretty it's an old movie. What is it from like the 1950s? 1940s. Yeah, there you go. 1940s. So like <laughs> during World War Two or immediately afterwards. 
it's about the it is set during World War II uh, that does factor into the movie. It's set in Casablanca of all places, where a a, a world weary old man, well not old man, but aging man, owns a a bar into which. Out of all the bars and all the gin joints and all the and all the towns in all the world, I butchered that quote. But uh, his old flame comes into. So the movie follows them negotiating their past relationship, whether or not they're going to move forward, while also kind of uh, dealing in an ancillary way with what's happening uh, in the Second World War, which is uh, of equal importance, at least. Um, But this movie is world famous. It's got a ton of instantly recognizable quotes, like the one I just completely ruined. Um, But I've only seen it the once, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I was expecting to, because I saw this at a point in my life when I was like, anything made past 1990 is by definition, or anything made before 1990 is by definition inferior to the things that are being made now. Uh, I don't think that anymore, obviously. This is a really good movie. This relationship is really well constructed and very, the ultimate uh, resolution of it is very bittersweet. Uh, and it's just a, it's a good time for people who don't like, or for people who are a bit more realistic about the way romantic relationships can and often do play out. Yeah, I fully endorse this recommendation. Casablanca is a classic, and I think it fully deserves its status as a classic. I think a lot a lot of people I've talked to were really surprised by how much they enjoyed this movie, that they kind of went in with the same mindset as you. Like, oh, anything made, yeah, I <laughs> that old stuff is bad and not relevant. And I think this movie is really amazing in how it's been able to remain relevant despite coming out so long ago. And it certainly when it came out, it was intended to be saying something completely different from what it now says. Anyway, my recommendation is a musical. It's a French musical titled The Umbrellas of Cherbeau. I think that's how you pronounce the city's name, but I'm not French. Um, this is a musical by Jacques Demi, or Demi, I don't know. Again, I don't know how to pronounce French names. But this director had a huge influence on the style and the way La La Land looks. Uh, I think if you watch this, any of his movies, you'll see that sort of influence instantly. Umbrellas is my personal favorite. I've only seen two of his, but this one was the best in my mind. It's also about kind of a bittersweet relationship that goes south. All of the dialogue is sung, but it's also in French, which kind of sounds like people are singing anyway. So it had very little impact on me in terms of my enjoyment or non-enjoyment. And it's just, I think it's just a really fantastic movie and it's a really cool look at some of the things that went into La La Land both in terms of style and story so I think it's a really neat watch I enjoyed it I think other people would enjoy it haven't seen that never will but hey you know what they say life is hard and full of disappointments wow they who's they you you say this (laughs) 
Well, people, other people say it in not so many words or words to that effect. Sure. Um, well, Nathan, yeah, this it, was... it has gotten perhaps in reflection of your mood as I've continually dunked on this movie. It has gotten very dark in your room. Yeah, well, I think that's partially it's very cloudy and rainy up here in the old Ames. And I am too far away from the light switch to turn on the light. So, yes, it is very dark in here. Uh, where it's not dark is um, the future of Magellan's of the movie. You know, we've got, <laughs> we've got one year in the bag. We're excited to start embarking on year two. We've got some exciting episodes coming up. We've got some exciting movies we're going to watch, I guess. Uh, but yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. If you, again, if you haven't listened to the second episode for this special two-week event, uh, check that one out. And we'll be back next week with another new episode.